And now, Unplugged, a CCBO podcast with David Mitchell. We invited a well-known public policy thought leader, Roger Gibbons, to speak at CCBO's annual general meeting this year. We were especially interested to hear his views on policy advocacy and the nonprofit sector in advance of provincial and federal elections next year. Here's how I introduced Roger at our Calgary AGM. One of the reasons why we're so excited about Roger's um, agreement to come and be with us today. When I say come, many of you will think, well, where's Roger coming from? He's, he's from here, and indeed he is. He's a well-known Calgarian. Interestingly, some of you may not be aware, he now lives in Vancouver. Um, and um, we like get bringing him back to Calgary as often as we can. For some of you uh, who are still in touch with Roger may know that if you call Roger on his Calgary cell phone number, he'll answer. Um, and um, uh, when, when you ask him, do I hear seagulls in the background? Uh, you'll find out that he's actually wa- doing his daily walk uh, around the Vancouver uh, Stanley Park seawall. Um, he makes us very jealous at, uh, when the weather's not so nice here. But, uh, but Roger, uh, uh, we like to provide as many excuses for you to be back uh, in your home here in Calgary, um, as many excuses as possible. You will all know, many of you uh, will know personally, that Roger is a very respected voice and advocate for Alberta and the West. His success in fostering awareness and opening up informed and balanced public dialogue include contributions as a political scientist, a teacher, an author, a public policy advisor, and as the former president of the Canada West Foundation. In 2012, Roger retired from the helm of the Canada West Foundation and took on a new role as senior fellow at the Max Bell Foundation. This capped his career, I think, dedicated to helping Albertans and Canadians understand themselves and their place in the world a bit better. Roger has articulated the realities, aspirations, and potential of the West within a strong and united Canada. And above all, Roger has encouraged innovative thinking about the challenges and opportunities ahead for our province and our country. And he's prodded his fellow Westerners and all Canadians to play an active role in the work of building a better future. We're so thrilled that he's here to uh, present to us a a talk that he's entitled, New Horns, Old Dilemma. And I'll let him explain the rest. Please welcome Roger Gibbons. Well, thank you, David, and and, uh, thank you all for the opportunity. Before I get into the meat of my remarks, uh, just a few organizational points. First of all, uh, David mentioned seagulls. I had no idea the seagulls were so vicious. (laughs) We have eagles near where we live in in, uh, the west end of Vancouver, and the seagulls drive the eagles crazy. The eagles appear in the evening sky, the seagulls just take after the eagles and drive them deep, deep back into the forest. They're a nasty bird. So if you hear seagulls, don't don't worry about it. If I appear during the presentation to have lost my place, it is because I have literally 
lost my place. I'm going through sort of eye reconstruction and new glasses, and I can see certain things, not others. And the, the area that's really hard for me to see is right where my notes are. I just want to mention uh, uh, something about the shape of the room. This is a great room for audiences. It's a terrible room for speakers because when you look out to the crowd, there's nobody there, but everyone's actually off on the sides. And so if I pretend to be or seem to be ignoring you, it's just I'm baffled by the shape of the room, so don't, don't feel offended. If I appear to step out of the room for a while, it's because I've fallen off the back of the... Uh, <laughs> platform. Uh, just, just talk among yourselves and, uh, and I'll be back. And finally, I'm aware that uh, food and drink awaits and uh, in 16 minutes from now, and my speech coincidentally is time for 16 minutes. So don't, don't fret, don't get anxious, uh, we're going there. So since my retirement from the Canada West Foundation in 2012 and then moving to Vancouver, my primary audience for political insight and so on has been my granddaughter, who's now seven years old. As she begins to realize just how much of her life is going to be a nonprofit activity, uh, she's developing emphatic opinions about the world. She may know less than you do, although she'll never admit it, but she's more steadfast, probably, in her opinions and her knowledge than any of you in this room, and certainly than I am. She's also increasingly cynical as about the glimpses of the political world that begin to encroach on her, on, on her world. The mere mention of Donald Trump, for example, sets her off like a firecracker. It's not a, not a pleasant sight. So I mention that because Today, I have a much less intimidating audience in you folks than I do with my granddaughter day after day. My entire career was spent in Calgary in the nonprofit arena, although during nearly 30 years at the University of Calgary, I was much like the proverbial fish, unaware of the nonprofit water in which I was swimming. Expressing political opinions was part of my job description as a professor of political science. As we know, academics live in a very different life or live in a very different uh, world uh, than mere mortals. And I produced more than 6,000 interviews, op-eds, and articles without ever considering the legal constraints on what I might say. Although I did try throughout to be nonpartisan. However, when I moved to the Canada West Foundation, I was much more aware of the constraints, legal and policy constraints, on the political activities of charities, because the Canada West Foundation was, in fact, a charity. While it's inconceivable that the University of Calgary would ever lose its charitable status, the same cannot be said for organizations like the Canada West Foundation. And without charitable status, we would be dead in the water. Dead. We were never audited by CRA, but the possibility was always there. Nonetheless, 
looking back, I was more concerned about not offending funders and about maintaining the internal harmony on our board and among the staff than I was about offending the CRA. The red line, however, was partisanship. But here, too, the constraints from funders were even more acute than the legal constraints. The challenge was that virtually all the policy issues that we addressed had partisan baggage and had a partisan edge. Policy recommendations were inevitably more attractive to some parties than to others. Policy critiques would inevitably seem to target some parties more than others. We were all about policy debates. That's, what we, that's why we were there. And yet it was impossible to wade into policy debates without also wading in to the partisan swamp. We therefore confronted the challenge of remaining nonpartisan on a daily, even hourly basis. And it should be, should be stressed, both our staff and our board were largely drawn from the most politically active members of the community. Those who are indifferent about political life seldom gravitate towards public policy think tanks. When I retired from this uh, complex but fascinating world, at least fascinating to me, if not my family, I had the post-retirement privilege to do a study for the Max Bell Foundation on charities and political activity. Under the somewhat provocative title of a call to arms, I argued that when organizations register as charities, they take on a moral responsibility for policy advocacy. And this argument, I think, applies to nonprofits who are not charities, but I'll just sort of ignore that important distinction as I, as I proceed. Charities, I argued, have a legitimate and important advocacy role. Through advocacy, they bring not only more voices to the policy table, but more diverse voices to the policy table than would otherwise be the case. They provide a platform for diverse interests that might otherwise be silent. And by doing so, they create greater ideological diversity within the policy process. A calls to arms, therefore, built the case that policy advocacy is a moral obligation for those claiming charitable status, and thus should be encouraged, not constrained. In fact, I went on to argue that if there is a problem, it was that there is too little advocacy, not too much, from the charity sector. Maybe charities are not being heard because they are not speaking loudly enough. Indeed, it can be argued that charities sometimes fail governments and fail their supporters and clients by not taking the policy advocacy bull by the horns. At times, the sector has been more focused on what governments can do for the sector than on what the sector can do to improve Canadian life. Easy to say. The difficult challenge is figuring out how to advocate for policy change without advocating on behalf of the party or parties most likely to support such change. You want to support the message 
but not the messenger. And yet we know how easily policy advocacy can slide into partisanship. It's not surprising, therefore, that boards are understandably wary of advocacy by their organizations. Advocacy that may exacerbate internal cleavages within the board or staff and potentially offend funders, including, of course, governments. So it's time, I argued, to recast the relationship between charities and governments, and this indeed is beginning to happen. It's also time for the boards of charitable organizations to ease constraints on policy advocacy. We may be relaxing the legal constraints, as I say may, um, <clears throat> but policy but the internal constraints on policy advocacy may be a harder nut to crack. So that's where, I, that's where I ended up two years ago. The question for this afternoon is how well does this ideologically charged political environment? Does it hold up or will it be trumped? <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> the dilemma, as I see it, is that the line between advocacy and partisanship is becoming harder to define and hold. It's a line in the sand on a very crowded and well-trampled beach. Moreover, the contemporary environment increases the pressure for charities and nonprofits to become politically engaged. How can we sit on the sidelines when we are told the very survival of Western civilization hangs in the balance? But at the same time, this charged environment makes it more likely that engagement will cross the line into partisanship. Polarization, in other words, increases both the necessity for and the risks of policy advocacy. Now, of course, political engagement is all about consequences. Take, for example, election campaigns and elections. They have consequences. At the very least, a change in power in Alberta from the NDP to the United Conservatives, or a change federally from the Liberals to the somewhat less United Conservatives, will have policy consequences. If not, then elections are without meaning. They must, they must come. Today, however, the stakes are seen as much greater than in the past. This rhetorical escalation is most evident in the United States, where we are told the very survival of democracy hangs in the balance. Every comment is parsed into support for or opposition to Donald Trump. If you say, good morning, what a fine day, becomes a political statement. How can you say democracy when it's a fine day when democracy is on the ropes? Only a Trump supporter would say it's a fine day. You just want to go, go hide, go hide. So the American policy environment has become intensely polarized and intensely partisan. Rarely, rarely do we find Americans who are neutral, who are nonpartisan in their assessment of policy options. Specific evidence-based policy debates are drowned out by the, by the big guns of ideological combat. There is no comfortable middle ground in the United States. 
where charities and nonprofits can play. Now, Canadians can flatter ourselves, which we do a lot, and thank God or thank a non-denominational, multicultural, spiritual, secular manifestation that we do not live in such a polarized environment, that Canadian politics is still all about capturing the middle ground. However, we are fooling ourselves if we assume that Canada will escape the polarization that is ripping apart civil discourse in the United States. Certainly, Doug Ford's victory in the spring Ontario election was not without ideological overtones and consequences. And the constitutional mess over reducing the number of seats on Toronto City Council is being framed in apocalyptic terms. In the eyes of many, our whole edifice of rights and freedoms is at stake, resting on the size of the Toronto City Council. Who would have thought ever that we would be in this situation? Closer to home, the rancorous pipeline debate is largely an ideological debate, with opponents of the Trans Mountain expansion predicting a climate change end to civilization as we know it, and for supporters, the very future of the Canadian economy is at stake. The upcoming Alberta election is likely to be one of the most ideological divisive, ideologically divisive that we have seen. When Peter Lougheed ousted the 50-year-old social credit government in 1971, he did so not by presenting his own party as a break from the past, but more as a more modern, more urban, more cosmopolitan version of social credit, a better-dressed version that would not be ridiculed in the rest of Canada. However, Jason Kenney's path to victory, should it materialize, will not come by stressing the continuity between his government and the government of Rachel Notley. And in the federal election to come in 13 months, we should anticipate, again, a highly divisive campaign with the government party arguing that Canadian values are, in fact, liberal values, that other values are not really Canadian values, that the election is not about policy or even leadership, but about national values and which party is their best custodian. Now, of course, we will not see explicit claims that the civil, uh, civilization is at stake, and the electoral choices in Canada will still not be as stark as they are in the United States, where charities and nonprofits cannot resist rushing to the barricades. Nonetheless, the impulse to engage will be stronger than ever, just as nonpartisan forms of engagement will be more difficult to find. Taking sides, which is, which is exactly what charities don't want to do, will be difficult to avoid. So what is a poor charity to do when sitting on the fence is becoming increasingly uncomfortable, when the pressure to engage and choose sides becomes even stronger? Let me conclude with some modest thoughts on this difficult dilemma. Just holding your nose and jumping in is a risky strategy that can make a difficult situation even worse. By all means, keep legal constraints in mind and particularly keep in mind the legal prohibitions on partisanship. These are not insignificant and they are important, I would argue, to the health of our society. 
Do not get drawn in by the casual use of social media. A good slogan for election campaigns might be, we tweet not. Tweets sent at three in the morning are seldom useful and often damaging, as the American experience shows. When I was with the Canada West Foundation, when we were into an election campaign, we tended to adopt a heads-down strategy, just keeping quiet, because everything is interpreted by the media, understandably so, as an endorsement or criticism of parties, and it all boils down to who's going to win. Once you get into that game, you're in deep, deep trouble. Try to avoid gratuitous comparisons with the United States. Referring to Jason Kenney or Doug Ford as Trump North or Trump Light is not a useful way to inform the Canadian debate. Never assume that we have nothing to learn from other countries, including the United States. Don't let our inherent smugness smother what could be a more rigorous policy debate. Always be an advocate for and an example of civility in political debates. Remember that you are playing the long game, that your interests have a longer time frame than the tenure of the next government. Restrict your policy engagement to areas of organizational expertise. Keep your focus. Speak when you have relevant evidence and experience to bring to the table. If you're a social service agency, be careful about wading in to energy policy. And if you're a nonprofit oil and gas organization, which I understand not by design, but many have become, <laughs> uh, be careful about critiques of social policy. In other words, protect your credibility and do so for the long haul. Avoid hyperbole. The sky is not falling. The day after the next election, most of us will still get up and go to work in the morning, unless you retire like me, when you won't. We'll pick up the kids or grandkids after school and look forward to a fine wine or a cold beer. Life will go on after the election. Respect the democratic process. Sometimes the bastards will win. Suck it up. It happens. Carry on. And finally, to repeat an earlier point, advocate for policy change without advocating on behalf of parties or parties most likely to support such, such change. You want to support the message, <clears throat> but not the messenger. So, I wish you all the best in navigating these very difficult waters. I'll be looking over the mountains with interest as I try to convince my granddaughter that the end of the world, or at least the end of her world, is not yet upon us. Thank you again for the opportunity. With Roger Gibbons' wisdom and advice, I think we all felt better equipped to prepare for the moral imperative of policy advocacy, even in a more polarized political environment. I'm David Mitchell, and you've been listening to Unplugged, a CCBO podcast.